0: Thank you for clicking on this brand new episode of The Preventive Medicine Podcast. Before we get into this episode, we want to let you guys know that we are starting a mailing list because we decided we're going to need a better way to reach you all in the case that for whatever reason our social media goes down once again. So head on over to our website at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com or go to the show notes of this episode or onto our Instagram using the link in our bio and sign up for that mailing list. We'll be using this mailing list to distribute uh, information regarding the podcast such as when episodes go live some behind-the-scenes stuff, and polling to help us make the podcast better. So um, with that out of the way, make sure you go sign up for that mailing list. And now let's get straight into this brand new episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. preventive medicine podcast we believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live and now here's your hosts jason garrett and raghav sharma
1: all right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our next episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. On today's episode, we have with us Dr. Chris Hunt, board-certified emergency medicine physician and also the medical director of USA Powerlifting. So uh, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hunt. We're happy to have you on.
2: Hey, guys. How's it going? <laughs>
0: Not bad. Not, Not going today. Yeah.
2: But uh, so
1: basically, first question we have for you, just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Why did you end up or how did you end up in emergency medicine? And kind of just talk about your role as medical director in USA Powerlifting.
2: Yeah, um, I ended up in USA. Well, I'll start with the emergency medicine question. I ended up in emergency medicine um, because originally I wanted to do ortho because I'm an American guy and I like sports. And uh, that's what you're supposed <laughs> to do, right? And that's I was amazing. like, well, I don't really like the OR at all because I like to, you know, sneeze and go to the bathroom and I have to scratch my face a lot. So <laughs> that was not a be- good be- Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up with emergency medicine more because I, I think I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. Um, and I like critical care and... I like the algorithmic thinking and I like the fact that, uh, every patient is kind of a new patient. You know, it's just a new approach to everybody. Then the other piece of that is I like the fact that emergency medicine is kind of, you kind of have to treat everybody no matter what. And that really gets to the humanist side of medicine for sure. So that really appealed to me. Um, the medical director thing, um, how did I get into that? I don't know. <laughs> um, I've been in the organization a million years. Um, so actually, I just <clears throat> was trying to figure out with my schedule how I could go to USAPL Raw Nationals again. And I had to make some schedule changes. And the entry form's not open yet. But um, I was reflecting on that. And I was like, wow, I've actually done open nationals, either equipped or raw every year since I was 23 and I'm going to be 39 this year. So wow. technically I'll age out in a mask. So yeah, I'm like, um, I think the the opening line from my email to my partners to request a vacation shift was out of the depths of my enlarging prostate and through my butt, somehow <laughs> I got a, uh, a qualifying total for raw nationals again this year. So <laughs> Um. Yeah. But that said, um was nominated for uh, the position back in 2014. And so I've been doing this for a bit now. I think Mike Rodacker was the one that did it before me. I don't know him, but... Um, we yeah, have kind of taken it over, and we've had a lot of issues and challenges and this and that that have been along the way, and then COVID now, and that's been a huge yeah. battle oh yeah in a, a pain in everyone's ass um and so what
1: are, what has that been like in terms of you know your role as medical director in these obviously strange times for everyone have they have you been doing a lot of consulting with the leadership for them to figure out yeah, yeah, to make
2: yeah, it enough um did a, a meeting with them. And so it's mostly my job is email because everybody's everywhere throughout the country. Um, the one meeting I did with them was regarding like masking and what do we do with this and face shields or not. And kind of how do we work through this issue? <laughs> you know, because it's like, how do you balance the risk of like, say, an older athlete passing out on the platform with a mask on while they're deadlifting, and what's the risk yeah. of that who knows nobody knows yeah. um uh, for what it's worth um i actually did my qualifying meet for nationals i had to re qualify cause I had a crappy total from a year ago. Uh, <clears throat> my qualifying meet, I, I wore a mask the whole time and honestly, I felt like it kept me warmer. <laughs> 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 it was a little cold and I was like, eh, keeping me warm actually. so I'm good. <laughs> but, you know, um, but yeah, the, um, the other role, the other piece of that is we're trying to figure out kind of, How are we reopening? What's that going to look like this year? Where's the numbers for the pandemic going? Nobody knows. But then there's the vaccine. That's like the wild card, right?
0: And for okay. those listening right now at home or wherever you are, this is currently uh, January 13th. So I know we often release these episodes a little bit way later. And I just got feedback actually someone listened to our episode and it was like two or three months back from where we were. Okay. And it like escalated significantly since then. So just for you guys listening at home, just for context January okay. 13th.
2: Context January 13th, and-
0: 2021.
2: 2021. I just got my second shot two days ago. All right,
0: congrats. <laughs> yeah, I
2: get my
1: second or... shot on the 30th. I think. <laughs> What's that? I think I get okay. my second shot
2: on the 30th. Okay, cool. So you guys have both got your first shots. Yeah. Yep. All right. Awesome.
1: It's great. Yeah, yeah, honestly, said, one of the one of the cooler scientific
2: uh, things that's happened in the last decade. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, and it it's it's kind of blows my mind because. Okay, there's this it's just this tremendous scientific breakthrough, right? I mean just this absolutely groundbreaking thing, right? And yet there's all this social media talk about like I don't trust it. I'm not getting it, you know? And it's like Oh man, it's everything
0: of the scary thing about that is that it's not even like, um, like the general population or anti-vaxxers who are doing this. There's actually a lot of healthcare workers. I don't know how many other, uh, Instagram accounts you follow that are like the, um, healthcare popular on social media, but they do like polls out there. Um, and our last guest, uh, Dr. Hader, your heart doc, he had like a poll where he asked healthcare workers, are you going to get the vaccine or not? And a majority of them, I think it was like, 50. I don't want to quote a number here, but I think the majority yeah. of them said they wouldn't get the vaccine. And that's the scary part to me. It is scary. So,
2: it is scary. There was an, along those lines, there's an article about um, healthcare workers in nursing homes in Ohio and how like something like 60% of them are not going to get vaccinated in nursing homes. And it's like, well, I, there's been <laughs> article upon article about like, these are the people sure. that are dying. Yeah. Like, gotta do. You know? But, yeah. um, I, I, you know, I, you know, I don't know what the right approach is here um, because, you know, you can't do the heavy handed approach because people don't want to stick a needle in their arm with something heavy handed. Right. I, yeah, I, the best thing you can do is just try to meet people where they are, I think, and try to see like where they are as far as the, being pre-contemplative about getting it. Why? And just do education. And, and then the the AMA Actually, and American College of Emergency Physicians, too, did kind of this big uh, campaign about trying to get physicians to post their vaccination on social media. And I don't know if you guys did it. You should. Um, But it's it's a because it's weird that as scientists, you guys can appreciate this. Um we I respond to data better, right, so yeah. I respond to like oh wow, you know, like very few side effects, and like oh wow, you know ninety percent ninety five percent effectiveness for the Pfizer or the moderna one, blah blah, blah. um but that 's not where the way the general population works. The general population responds to anecdotes, mm-hmm. right. So I think that's why the AMA and ASAP did this whole push of like, get this out on your social media of you sticking the needle in your arm and being like, I'm cool. Yep. So, <laughs> um, I, I kind of did it like one better. I was like, all right. So on when I got my second shot, cause the second shot is supposed to be the one where you get like the body aches and the fever and the this and the that. So after I got my second shot a few hours later, I was talking to my powerlifting coach, Mike Deshearer. Uh, with reactive training systems shout out um and I was like he wrote me programming I was like how do you feel if I just did like the threw a weight on the bar and just did an amrap and just be like hey this is a thing I survived I got my covid shot and I didn't die and I didn't survive this massive amrap I was like sounds like fine go for it so <clears throat> that's what I did I threw 505 on the bar for squat and it was just like Blast out reps and see how many I get, and I ended up getting ten, which was like a lifetime PR at age thirty-eight. So it's like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I was like crumpled up in a ball on the floor, <laughs> ready to pull up. Not related to the COVID shot. Related, that's the to, that set. related to the absit. Yeah. The yeah. The AMRAP. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't think that yeah. people who uh, have lifted something like that will experience anything like that's cool. way beyond what a shot will probably be like.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, Austin Baraki from Barbell Medicine, he posted something similar, like while he was training after his second shot, he said, you know, mild headache and then training went just fine. So like no symptoms at all, basically. Um, but yeah, I think, but the weird thing is, you know, i feel like people who may follow you or like people who follow us or, you know, Barbell Medicine, those kind of, it's like self-selective of people who already like us. So, you know, yeah. it's like the people who need to see it are the people who probably are not, but may not be following us at all.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's fair. And um, for sure. Um, you, you like to think that you have an eclectic group of people that are in your social media, but you know, usually you have like-minded people that are in your social media circle. Right. Um, yeah, it, of what it, oh, yeah. it is right.
0: Yeah. All right. I'm going to play bad cop. Now we could probably talk about the vaccine and COVID forever, but we're going to stay, we're going to stay on topic. Otherwise it's going to end up as a three hour podcast. Yeah. Ron uh, always has to bring me back to <laughs> <laughs> Which back to I don't that. want to put everyone through. So, right. um, obviously your background, um, as a EM physician, which we haven't had on the podcast actually. So that's incredible, um, that we have your perspective, but also, uh, with a foot in powerlifting, not just a foot, you've been what, 20 years almost in powerlifting now. Oh, right. 22. You said 23 to 40, right?
2: Well, I was, yeah. And then there was years before that and I competed.
0: Anyway, so you have a really unique perspective. That's the point of what I was trying to say, but, um, kind of the question we ask all of our guests to start off is what does preventive medicine mean to you?
2: Oh man, emergency medicine is like the dead opposite of preventative medicine, right? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this and was like, what insight can I have for preventative medicine? Uh for as an emergency physician? Uh don't drink and drive, don't smoke crack. Um
0: <laughs> like uh you know You say those jokingly, but they're actually like very high yield. Accidents are a major (laughs) cause of like, like a lot of stuff that goes down. So it's definitely preventive
2: medicine. Touch and drive. Uh, You know, I could tell you about a lot of like really crazy things that I've seen, but as far as like preventative stuff, what does that mean to me? Well, the biggest thing that means to me as an emergency physician is have a primary care physician, you know, have a regular healthcare provider right? Um, Because a lot of the healthcare that I deliver in the emergency room is, is primary care. Um, And right or wrong. um, I mean, I'm happy to do whatever I, I, love all my patients, even if they're difficult. Most of my patients are great. Um, But at the end of the day, the best thing that you can do for yourself is just to do preventative maintenance. And toward that line, what does preventative medicine mean to me? Well, I was medical director for USA Powerlifting, diet and exercise, right? That's the best thing that you can do for yourself. So I was pleasantly surprised. I got my own labs back from a life insurance exam. Yesterday, actually, um, and I open them up, <clears throat> and mind you, like I'm, I'm anti-cardio. Like I am the most. <laughs> anti cardio person you can be and you know the AMA has like position statements on like you're supposed to do you know 30 minutes of cardio X number of times a week and blah 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 and I'm I'm so anti-cardio. <laughs> so um but I've been lifting for many years and I have a fairly healthy diet, I'd like to think, you know, heavy on vegetables, heavy on lean proteins and then the only variables really are carbs and fat uh, and healthy fats, but, um, just, just for fun the night before I had an entire large pizza and a six pack of beer before I got my labs (laughs) (laughs) back and my triglycerides were like 10 points below normal. And my LDL cholesterol was like 10 points below normal. Granted, I'm still 38 years old, but, um, my whole lipid profile was like awesome because, uh, I'm I'm bragging right now but I'd like to say <laughs> it's because lifting had a big part of it and I don't think Absolutely. that people like really appreciate um and it's not really been spoken enough about in the medical community how far lifting can go to be preventative maintenance for you and your health. Um. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, you don't have to be—you don't have to be the cardio bunny on the elliptical machine for an hour, you know, to be quote healthy. If and especially if you don't enjoy that, and I, I hate that, you know. And there's a lot yeah, of people yeah. don't like it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think in some some of the, the newer research is starting to shed light on that. Is like they've they've looked at um, how uh, lifting weights or resistance training can affect hypertension in, in a positive way in, in terms of bringing yeah. your blood know, pressure down. Yeah. And,
2: Yeah, for sure. There's like some antiquated uh, notions in medicine that just never go away. Right. And um, one of those is that um, lifting will increase your blood pressure over time. Um, And that's actually been demonstrated to be categorically false. And in fact, there's been some newer studies that have demonstrated that lifting may be better than your blood pressure, better for your blood pressure than cardio if you compare them head to head um i think that the ideal scenario is that you do a little bit of both but
0: yeah. uh- Yeah. In my uh, interviews going into uh, PM&R, there's a lot of like MSK medicine type stuff. And there's also a lot of um, somewhat of a interlap between like preventive medicine and whatnot. They always ask more research interests are. And I always tell them strength training as it relates to pretty much every single health outcome, like especially rehab and whatnot, because that's what I kind of have to say for interviews, but um, especially with like everything. And also (laughs) I just wanted to point out, did Jason ever tell you he did an ultra?
1: Oh Yeah. During yeah, thirty, 30 yeah. Hours yeah. training, I
2: was like training for cardio and cardio. <laughs> Never <laughs> desire to do this. Never <laughs> to <be> ever in my life.
0: But I also wanted to ask before we move on from this. You mentioned the uh, primary care as preventive medicine Um, for our listeners back home. What does that kind of mean? Because primary care can mean like a whole bunch of things. Like, am I going to to a physician for when I have a common cold, or what do you mean by primary care yeah, in that sense?
2: Sure, sure. So primary care meaning establishing care with a physician that you can go to for something like a primary like a like a common cold or a fever or this and that, but also uh, establishing care with a physician that you can see on a regular basis for labs, right? Um, to make sure that they're not going wonky, to make sure your kidney markers are okay, your cholesterol is okay, that your blood pressure is okay, right? Because um, you'd be... there's this idea that, you know, I'll I'll do this when I'll get, when I get older and a lot of people tell themselves I'll get a primary care doctor when I'm 50 or I'm 60 or I'm 40 or whatever. And they, and it's just like kind of kicking the can down the road and it just doesn't happen until you get this catastrophic, catastrophic event with your health. And then all of a sudden you've got to backtrack and get all of this other stuff done. And that's a lot of times at the, the point of application of healthcare where I get involved and it's like, well, sir, you've already had this heart attack yep. you know, and you know, we're going to be for this and take care of you for this. And then everybody, all the rest of the physicians that are involved in the care have to backtrack and do all this other stuff that needed to be done before. Um, so that kind of stuff, I mean, and and then there's routine maintenance that everybody needs to get. Right. So to, to be fair, I, had a primary care physician starting in my mid thirties, <laughs> who was a friend of mine. And then he moved away and I didn't have one for a couple of years. So then my my wife was like, well, I'm pregnant and I want you to live for like a long time. So I get <laughs> another one." <laughs> so, it's like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So I got another primary care physician. He was like, you know, in a couple of years, we're going to have to start talking about prostate exams and colonoscopies. I'm like, we just met dude
1: (laughs) 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 Uh, do you want me to come back or
0: I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at PreventPod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show.
2: But, but these are the things that need to happen, right? These are the things you need to get, right? Especially men, right? Um... Men go by the wayside, you know, women have the benefit the curse I, of having an OBGYN and having it, you know, pelvic exams and cervical exams, but then that acts as a access point for primary care yeah. and men go by the wayside because they, I don't know, we, we convince ourselves we're invincible or something. No. Uh, and then we also don't have to get routine maintenance for a lot of reasons, um yeah I, I think it's it's it is you know you look back at you know a lot of the things
1: that cause catastrophic events down the road are things that you know need to be caught way before the event happens so you know like diabetes you know hypertension oh, yeah. lipid profiles all those things like start you know if you don't if you don't know what's going on from the time you're you know you're an adult and then you get to and you have a heart attack well that's years of time you can't make up for
2: for sure for sure and um and I always feel bad for patients because it's like, you know, uh, man, I had, you know, I'm, try, I'm trying to think how, how well I can go into this without HIPAA. But, uh, um, you know, I have so many case examples of some, something so similar to that. And um, I don't know, a case example that I had of uh, because of the lockdowns of COVID, and uh, a patient came in with um, abdominal swelling and belly pain um, for months and she hadn't been to an OBGYN. She was in her late thirties. She hadn't been an OBGYN for some time, um, because just didn't feel the need, didn't have kids, um, and then didn't have a primary care physician either. And that's usually when people get lost to primary care is like in their late twenties to thirties. And so anyway, her complaint was belly swelling. It turns out Um, And she didn't get checked out because of COVID and the lockdowns and this and that. Um, And she ended up having ovarian cancer with a, I mean, a massively large tumor that had just been growing for months because of the lockdowns. So even now during COVID, you know, we actually put out a campaign saying, you know, we're still here. And the primary care physicians had to put out a campaign saying, we're still here. You know, we can see you for non-COVID related things. We need to. 'Cause that, that poor was, lady, you know, she's in her late thirties. I don't know, I don't know what happened to her, but um I, I hope everything turned out okay. But it was a it was a massive tumor that was in her belly, I can tell you that.
1: Yeah, we so. and we talked with Dr. Hader about that. He's an interventional cardiologist and he was seeing something similar of people with chest pain not going to the doctor because of COVID. Oh. So all these heart attacks, people dying at home because they yeah. they don't want to go to the hospital.
2: Yeah, heart attacks going at home or heart attacks turning into um, ischemic cardiomyopathy um, and then congestive heart failure because they just kind of like let it go. Um, And, you know, that happens anyway, um, but it's happening more. Um, So, you know, this whole mess of COVID has just kind of made a... It, it, unintended consequences, un, unfortunate consequences, um, but you know what's the right answer? That and again, we could wax poetic about the lockdowns and COVID and all this stuff for three or four hours. But. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure other other people will do that for quite some time. But
1: uh, oh, yeah. so, in you know, for for a lot of our listeners, they may know that Raghav and I powerlifting um you know may have some you know interest in it but for those that don't listeners that
2: don't can you explain what powerlifting is as a sport sure so powerlifting is um arguably one of the simplest sports in existence <laughs> um so it's three events so it's squat it's bench and it's deadlift right um and in fact my best man at my wedding <clears throat> made a joke and he said that um cuz he was talking about my wife and how she was interested Seeing me compete in the Arnold, he was like, oh, "Okay, what? Well, why? Why is this shit coming to see you compete at the Arnold?" I mean, I'll go with you because I'm your lifting buddy, but powerlifting's like boring, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she's like, "Well, because I like it and it interests me, and you know, like the production value for USAPL has actually gone up quite a bit. So the meets are actually a lot more fun to watch now than they used to be when I first started out. Um, but the joke was." That powerlifting is uh watching um barbells move against simple Newtonian physics in straight lines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in, in just different
1: different versions of standing Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, all of training is essentially the same, too. You just do the same monotonous movements over and over and over, yeah, with maybe yeah, some variations. Just. Sort
2: of funny, the funny part of that is is that the human body actually can only move a barbell in so many different planes, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. So,
1: and for our listeners, when you're in a powerlifting competition, so you have three attempts at each lift and it goes in a specific order. So you squat first and then you bench press and then you deadlift. All are judged by three judges. Um, and different angles of the lift to, based on different standards that we won't go into. But you either pass the lift or fail the lift based on getting at least two thirds of the judges to tell you it was a good lift. And um, basically the idea is you're doing one rep. So if you lift it heavier
2: than the next guy in your weight class, then you win. Right. And it's it's a little bit different than just say lifting in the gym, right? Because everybody can be the strongest man in the world in the gym, but you actually have to get a lift to pass in front of three judges, right? So you have to get two white lights out of, out of three for each lift that you attempt. Um, and so a lot of times the approach for a lot of power lifters will be to leave some, some pounds on the bar, even by their last attempt. Um, just so they make sure that they complete successful lifts because the ones that, and the statistics show this, that the ones that win the meets are the ones that complete the most successful attempts. um, that's, that's been very well demonstrated.
0: Yeah. So with powerlifting being a sport, that's primarily like lifting the most heavy weight and like trying to do as much as you can. Um, a lot of people might think that it's not necessarily the safest thing when you're loading your back with like a five, six, 700 pounds squatter, like Ray Williams, putting a thousand pounds in your back. Um, and like traditional, uh, parents maybe that aren't exposed to things like lifting and resistance training would say that's super dangerous. There's even doctors out there that say, don't go too heavy. You're going to wreck so, your knees. You're going to wreck your back. I mean, you're not going to be like walking around when you're 80. So is powerlifting safe?
2: Okay. So, and it's funny you mentioned that because I was told that. <laughs> I think you know, we all I, had it. Like,
1: I, I had a doctor one time tell
2: me that I shouldn't lift more than 50 pounds. I
1: was like, I was like 19 at <laughs> the time. Like, what are you talking
2: no, about? no. I was told um, when I was in college wrestling in college and I was recovering from a knee injury that and I was, I was actually competing in powerlifting. Um, I was told that I should not be squatting heavy weights because I won't be able to run around with my kids when I'm in my mid thirties. I'm like, oh. I'm, I'm closing in on 40 now. And I've got yeah. my daughters squatting and deadlifting with me in my, my 11 year old squatting and deadlifting with me in my gym in my garage. And, running around with her just fine <laughs> yeah yep. probably better than some of my other cohorts that i wrestled with you know you're
1: gonna be with because of resistance training most of us will probably be running around with our kids and grandkids a lot easier in our
2: 60s 70s yeah. and 80s. Funny because that's actually been well demonstrated too so is powerlifting safe power lifting is extremely safe and in fact <clears throat> if you think about it just from a philosophical perspective um you know what is the most common cause of everyone's demise? Well, it's muscle wasting. It's, it's sarcopenia, right? So you can't get out of bed, and then you have a what? Stroke? You have a heart attack? You have a this or the that? You fall or you fall and you break a hip, and then you yeah. have a bleed into your head, and so. The, but the first step in that pathway is muscle wasting. And so if you can do anything to prevent that, then you're on a good trajectory to improve your longevity. Um, So is, so is powerlifting safe? Okay. The first coach that I had was a tiny little woman named Judy Gedney. Does this name ring a bell to either of you guys? No. Oh, you guys are killing me. whippersnappers (laughs) all right so um she was the first inductee into the usa powerlifting women's hall of fame she was an ipf world champion at the i think 99 pound weight class and right before her 70th birthday um she deadlifted close to 300 pounds so close to three times body weight right before her 70th birthday she's she was awesome
0: i think that's pretty good
2: yeah, for yeah. I had a, a, a personal... Maybe it's a little good.
1: <laughs> so before before medical school, I actually worked at a gym and did training, and conditioning, coaching, and did a lot of powerlifting programming. And I actually um, there's a, a, a lifter that that I had been that still keeps in contact with me. He is a retired school superintendent, and I think he's closing in on seventy. And he competes in powerlifting now, um, but he's you know coming up on seventy and hitting deadlift PRs. I think he's deadlifted over four hundred pounds at age like sixty six or something like that. So just incredible, you know. Yeah. And he feels probably better than most people
2: do in their late 30s or 40s would be my guess absolutely so um, yeah you can do it from very young to very old right so I I talked about my 11 year old daughter Um, she weighs all of 85 pounds and uh, I, I have a video of her that taking 85 pounds on deadlift to the house for 12 reps um, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> that's
1: younger than I got oh, yeah. she, she might be the next uh, IPF world champion. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. I was, I was definitely proud of her. Um, and then, I mean, my dad, so I got my dad into lifting later in life. Um, <laughs> and <clears throat> so my dad was an appliance salesman. We had a appliance business growing up. And so I guess maybe that's where I get my strength from is we we're always delivering appliances, um, all the time. Um, but he never really lifted ever. And I started getting him into lifting in his late 50s. And then I think it was like a year or two ago. Um, and mind you, he weighs all of 180 pounds and he deadlifted um like 350 for like six reps. he had only been lifting with me for a few years. Um, so and and um this was immediately almost immediately after he had a hip replacement. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yes, powerlifting is safe. Um, And not only so safe that I would argue that it keeps you safer and keeps you healthier and, and living longer.
0: Yeah. Definitely. And I also do want to add as like a quick thing in there, you might see like people, uh, for example, we had Eddie Cohn on the podcast. Oh. He has uh two hips that got replaced and a knee that got replaced. So if you're going to like the extremes of a sport, I think in any sport, obviously there's gonna be injuries and things that aren't quote unquote safe. But for the general population, I think for the most part, lifting weights not necessarily going to the extremes. It's going right. to be for the most part safe. And,
1: and you know, if you look at actually like, you know, for the, there nerd, the nerds out there, like, like us who are listening, if you look at the data for injuries per thousand hours or a hundred hours in the sport of powerlifting, yeah, I mean, it it. it's vastly lower than some other sports.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the lowest actually. Um, I think some of the higher ones are like, you know, American football and soccer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, higher higher impact, sports. Yeah. Higher. right. So higher impact sports, you know, soccer is a lot of like ankle stuff and, um, football is a lot of concussions, right. <clears throat> and powerlifting really the injuries are right, meniscus, you know, you get a pff, labral tear in your shoulder. Um, so some just kind of like chronic wear and tear stuff. Um, but the funny part of that is, is that you if you have enough birthdays anyway what are you going to get anyway. exactly gonna same get, thing yep. you're going to get knee stuff you're going to get meniscus stuff with you're going to get a disc herniation in your back you know if you're yep. obese what are you going to get you're going to get meniscus stuff you're going to yep. get a disc herniation in your back um, yep. so
1: yeah it's like it's like the same logic you know i think some some recent data came out about running and how it actually does not have a deleterious effect on the knees Uh, on the knee joints, and you look at, you know, like, otherwise, all these runners that have been, you know, doing marathons or whatever, for you know, years and years and years now, you would think they would be the highest cohort for knee replacements, but it's not. It's, it's people who are uh, sedentary and obese. That's just, you know, what it is.
2: And that's, I mean, those are multifactorial considerations, too, because, uh, you know, arthritis is a condition where... Um, there's also the, a a patient tolerance aspect to it as well. Right. And so what does exercise do? It actually increases your pain threshold, be it cardio or being lifting. Um, and so it increases your tolerance for tolerating your own pain in your body and in your joints. Um, and so it increases your ability to tolerate arthritis. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it increases your ability to tolerate a this and a that. Yep. <laughs> Actually, my, my former primary care physician that moved away, um, he was a climber, um, but he always had this paradigm that he always told patients. And he said, you know, um, most of the general population as they get older, we'll get medical ailments and illnesses, but athletes get injuries. And that's true, right? Uh, so athletes get less medical ailments. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a slight trade-off, depending mm-hmm. on how high level you are, right? Because if you're, if you're operating at the extremes of human capacity, then are you more likely to get injured? Absolutely. Um, but you're also, you know, improving your LDL cholesterol, you're improving your, you know, likelihood of obtaining diabetes over your lifetime, your blood pressure and all that kind of stuff.
1: Um, And, you know, as we talk about powerlifting the sport, you know, I think one of the things that can get overlooked is ability to bring people into a community where, you know, most people aren't reaching the extremes of human potential, but they are getting exposed to regular resistance training. Do you think that powerlifting as a sport is a good way to introduce,
2: uh, you know, lead people into just, you know, structured resistance training? Absolutely. I think powerlift. So USA Powerlifting's membership has exploded in the last few years. Um, part of that has been... Because of the effect of CrossFit, people get into CrossFit and then they say, hey, I like the lifting part of this more. And so then they bridge over into powerlifting. And in fact, one of the biggest cohorts of our membership explosion um, has actually been females. um, Because in decades past, you know, power lifting at all was not viewed as like feminine or whatever. Um, but since the advent of CrossFit, um, it's been kind of more socially acceptable for women to lift, which is awesome. Right. Cause my first coach was a 99 pound female. Yeah. Um, and there's only like women have only bet things to gain from lifting. Right. Um, and so now you've got women like Jen Thompson, Right. Um, who, by the way, her husband is an ER physician. That's a friend of mine. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I think she benches uh, more than I do. What's
2: that? She might bench more than me, I think, Jen Tom.
0: Yeah, I think she benches more than me too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, she doesn't bench more than me, but not by a lot. I'm not a great bencher. Um, <laughs> uh, but Donovan definitely benches more than me and he's a weight class below me and he's like 10 years older than me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they're definitely very good bunchers. But um, so Jen Thompson, I bring her up as an example because those women serve as like an inspiration for, for other women to get into lifting, right? Because Jen Thompson is like, you know, salt of the earth and she's really fun to watch and she's super strong and, and she's, you know, a great mom and all this stuff. And so she's a good inspiration for folks to get into it. And it's, I think, athletes like her, it's really helpful to have in our organization. Um you know Jen Thompson is, for what it's worth is one of the reasons that my wife started getting into lifting too so you know.
1: Yeah, you know I think one of the things that you know as we you know talk about preventive medicine for you know males and females, I think the societal norms or societal pressures um and obstacles are different obviously for males and females where like lifting has always been kind of a thing that guys did um and was kind of in in a reverse sense kind of frowned upon for females to lift, but now we're kind of breaking those down in both science and you know, like you mentioned earlier, anecdote is more powerful for lay people than science is. Exactly. So, you're right. seeing more, more and more women doing these sports, and you know, still fitting those other roles of you know that, that I guess are looked at in a positive light. And I think that's encouraging more women to to get into resistance training and, um, which, which like you said is you know
2: is an awesome thing. So that's it's great. Yeah, great. absolutely. Um, and you know, bridging away from the anecdote, um, you know, a big thing that women have to encounter or at least are faced with in their lifetimes is um, osteopenia right so bone density loss more so than men 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 do experience it if they don't stay active um but it's ends up being more of a play for women and so one of the best ways to combat that lifting i mean seriously and lifting calcium supplementation and stuff too but i mean really you know um, loading the bones, loading the skeleton, it goes a long way to preventing that. Um, because hip fractures is a major issue for women. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's a huge thing. And if you can do a lot of work during your lifetime to prevent that, uh, well, cardio doesn't do a great job of preventing that. It does some of a job, but loading the skeleton lifting absolutely helps. And that's been well demonstrated when you know we talked about sarcopenia earlier and, and resistance training
1: basically treats in a, in a sense treats both of those things if you look at the, the literature the first line recommendation for sarcopenia is protein supplementation in line with resistance training so in osteoporosis osteopenia is a similar thing you want to load the skeleton so it's almost like if you convince people there's a pill that would do this like you list all the benefits of resistance training people will be lining up for it
2: yeah it happens to be that it show them to the gym and putting a bar on your back yeah there's a saying something goes like um a barbell prescription is the only thing that you can give to a patient where as they get healthier the dose goes up that's, that's awesome. awesome yeah I've never heard I, that
0: before. That's awesome. I feel like i've heard that at some point but yeah. it doesn't ring a bell right now so
2: you can make that argument for running too i guess <laughs>
0: Yeah. You know. yeah. Ex- expanding <laughs> on your role in, uh, kind of the USAPL and medical director and continuing to talk about powerlifting, um, kind of has your role within the USAPL kind of mostly just been like regulatory within that, or has it give you additional opportunities to like, uh, expand lifestyle changes for maybe, uh, communities or lifters or whatnot?
2: Um, mostly regulatory, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, cause <clears throat> the, the day-to-day ins and outs of the, the USAPO role that I have is um essentially just determining is um is this prescription going to pass muster for our uh for our allowances. So um I'm involved with the therapeutic use exemption committee. Um I'm the head of that. And so basically what we determine is is this um if with this patient being on this medication, are we going to allow them to be on the platform? Um, And so we actually have the benefit of also having a pain management doctor on our committee. Um, So as you guys are probably acutely aware, but not all the listeners may be aware is that we have an opiate crisis in this country, right? We've had that for a few years. Um, And so we've had, um, kind of snowballing numbers of requests for therapeutic use exemptions come via email for opiates. Um, you know, I, I am chronically on opiates, and I need to be taking suboxone. And um, through our pain management position that's also on the committee, we've come up with basically a position stating, you know, being on narcotics on a powerlifting platform poses a safety risk, um, and there's no, there's no life saving properties of the opiate class of medications, none. Um, and so, um, if you are chronically on opiates, chronically, there there are acute, there's some fair acute indications for being on opiates, such as like a a recent long bone fracture or something like that, but like breaking an arm and you're on. Norcos for a week or two or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you're chronically on opiates, then that's a that's a substantial risk. Because um, you know, somebody that's just broken an arm probably isn't going to go out and compete, right? So, uh, so basically, what, what our position statement has been um, for some time now is that we don't allow chronic use of opiates on the platform. So. That's-
1: and so, kind of talking about that, you know, the, what Roger kind of mentioned is that, you know, potential, I guess, uh, opportunity of having that, that you know, position of being both a medical expert and in a realm where you're seeing powerlifters on a regular basis. Do you ever see your role or, or have an interest in maybe taking those two and, you know, combining maybe some sort of outreach from USA powerlifting into, you know, lifestyle type of, it, you know um, you know, kind of like I think of like the NFL's play 60 obviously much different budgets, much different, you know, yeah. <laughs> effect
2: sizes, but do you see a similar opportunity there with USAPL? Yeah, the- I would love for that to be a thing. Um, and I, you know, I can tell you that USAPL has done a great job in partnering with, uh, organizations like, uh, Renaissance periodization, um, which is, a, essentially a diet company. Um, And that's done a lot for the athletes and like keeping costs down, um, for, you know, diet programming and this and that. Um, and so USAPL on their end has done a lot of stuff with, you know, kind of preventive maintenance and, and everything. Have I, um, looked at this as an opportunity? Oh, for sure. Um, unfortunately finances aren't infinite and Time is not infinite, but <laughs> um we all wish they were. I know. <laughs> um we are I can tell you that we are a um almost like a grassroots organization and powerlifting is kind of still on a as as far as some sports go in an infancy phase, we are finally gaining traction, I feel like. Um I I feel like we have a position in the next few years to maybe finally bridge into the actual Olympics proper
1: uh, yeah.
2: for the listeners that are not aware. Powerlifting is not an Olympic sport. Um, it's part of the, the offset Olympics, I guess, if, if you want to call it that. So the Olympic world games um, for the sports that are not actually in the Olympics themselves. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because um, you would think the Olympics would want to have a kind of pure, Strength display sport, but there's already a lifting sport in the Olympics, which is Olympic weightlifting. Yeah. And there's um, a lot of politics involved with that, and then there's some drug abuse issues, in particular steroid abuse considerations, um, because Olympic lifting apparently represents ninety percent or something of the positive drug doping tests in in all of the Olympics, and so, so that's a major consideration of the I, I reading between the lines that um what the olympic hesitancy may be for introducing powerlifting as well but um it would be nice and and there has been some talk of joining olympic lifting and powerlifting into just you know lifting um kind of like other sports have done and so mm-hmm. like Weightlifting is one sub subcategory and powerlifting is another subcategory. I don't know if that's going to gain traction or not, but this is these have all been ideas that have been thrown thrown out there for some
1: time. So, so almost yeah. kind of like swimming has different distances or different like relays or like that sort of thing. Same thing with with track and field. So almost like you would have like instead of it would be in the category of like track and field it would be lifting, and then you have your different events. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Nice. Hmm. You mentioned broken, like, you know, the opioids, and we we're talking about that, and the broken arm situation. So, you know, kind of cycling back to traumas, I know, like that's one of the things we're kind of interested in. In you know, we touched on a little bit in the beginning, but you know, as an emergency medicine physician, you're seeing you know, traumas all the time. Do um, you have like a typical, you know, obviously one of the best preventive things is to not do dumb stuff that gets you into a situation where you're in the hospital with a broken arm. So, you have like a subset of things you tell patients of, like? you know, who have kids or at a certain age, like here's activities that or things you should keep in mind to avoid showing up in the ER with a broken leg or broken arm or car accident or that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the the first thing is don't text and drive. (laughs) I mean, that's an absolutely huge issue now. Um, so one of our trauma surgeons through St. Vincent, Lou Jacobson has, um, come out and done a big campaign, a big commercial campaign, um, about why you shouldn't text and drive. Um, and it's huge. Um, you know, I see it every day. Somebody that's texting and then they blew through a stop sign and then all of a sudden they've got a bleed inside their skull. You know, it's every day. So, um, that's a big thing that I talk to people about seatbelt use. Still, you you would think in 2020 with seatbelt laws still being a thing, Um, but I still have to unfortunately lecture folks about, you know, um, about wearing their seatbelts. Um, you know, another thing is, um, just drinking alcohol in general. So that's a a canned speech that I have to kind of give a lot to folks is because the funny thing that happens with alcohol and alcoholism, um, is it kind of snowballs over time. Right. So, um, Folks will drink, you know, one drink a day and then it turns into two drinks a day. And then all of a sudden you're drinking a six pack every day. Uh, And then your liver function is all of a sudden wacky. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, I drink a lot. You know, I should probably stop. And now you're in alcohol withdrawal because you have this physical dependency. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a conversation that I have to have a lot with patients is... um, well, do you, number one, do you want to stop drinking? Because they have to want to stop; otherwise, it's not going to—it's a non-starter, right? Um, and then, number two, um, if you want to stop, then we have to put you on a medication regimen because otherwise, you'll start to have seizures. Because alcohol withdrawal is a one of the true life-threatening withdrawal syndromes. Um, you can die from alcohol withdrawal. And so that's a that's always a very difficult conversation that I have to have about preventative maintenance and where do we go from here and how do we get you off you know how do we get you off liquor yeah. so a lot of conversations that I have to have um, unfortunately in today's day and age with ER patients as far as preventative maintenance is surrounding substance abuse so surrounding opiates you know I have a lot of chronic opiate users and I have to you know decline. Patients when they're requesting an opiate and saying, you know, I'm here for my chronic opiate pain and no, you can't have a refill on this narcotic today. Sorry. Um, and so those kind of conversations that I have to have. Um some of the other stuff um that's you know, I I do have to have on a regular basis is you know, like weight loss. Um we have a Americans are obese. That's a fact. Um, in fact, I will say this for my state, um, Indiana was the, I think the first state to reach 30% obesity in the U S like in the yeah, early, not a,
1: not a race you want to win
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's far surpassed by many other states.
0: Um, I think I just saw yesterday, there was a state in the Northeast that went down in their obesity rate or BMI rate. I, oh, I forget exactly what state it was, but I think last year was the first time that ever happened.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting because, um, so I did my residency in New York, New York City. And I did medical school in Indiana. And I was like, when I went to New York, I was like, where's all the obese patients? Like, there's some, but like, where'd they all go? And and intuitively, I guess I didn't make the connection right away. um, But it makes sense that in New York City, you walk a lot right? So you have to walk everywhere. Nobody has a car. And so walking is an easy calorie burning activity. Um, so people talk about getting in there 10,000 steps every day. I try to do it. I mean, yeah. my, my job is easy because I'm on my feet. Every day. walking around
1: yeah. uh,
2: But I, I mean, that's an easy mode of weight loss. And I, and I tell this to patients, you know, if they're, Pre-contemplative, say um, just beginning to start to think about maybe losing weight because they've come in with an acute medical issue and it's related to their weight. I say, well, a great way to just get started is just to walk more. Whatever you can do to just walk. I mean, it's it, it's easy. It's easy on the joints. It's kind of a no-brainer, and just to not be in front of your computer like we are right now, <laughs> um, or to not be in front of your computer like kids are right now with skyping and stuff for school and watching tv whatever you can do to just walk and i know that's really difficult in covid yeah. <laughs> um, but if you have a pet a pet is an awesome way <laughs> to get in way more steps yeah. because pets need especially dogs and so if you can get out of the house and walk your dog three four times a day just at least a couple times around the block it's a, it's a great start yeah
0: and this is why we love this podcast and we love to bring the perspectives is because we have things that you're suggesting all the way from just walking your dog all the way up to other very like different things like don't text and drive conversation with alcohol, which people might not think of as necessarily preventive. But when you come at it from different lenses and perspectives, they're all kind of the same thing of preventing further things down the line. But mm-hmm. um, the idea is the same message is very different.
2: Yeah, the point of application that I exist in the medical field is when somebody has something that is related to their chronic condition a lot many many times. It's it's a chronic thing that has been brewing then they haven't prevented and then all of a sudden it's this major crisis. And then folks are working to backtrack and undo that thing they could have prevented. Um That's kind of the realm that I live in, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then zooming out from your uh, personal experiences in ER doc, we probably should have like um, maybe asked this question earlier on. So we had more time, but it's a pretty broad question in the sense of um, in terms of just we've talked about obesity in America. We've talked about all these different things, the opioid crisis. What are the major barriers that you see um, towards a healthier America?
2: Yeah, I think we've hit on a lot of them. Um the biggest one honestly I think is getting out of covid <laughs> right now the yeah, Definitely actually, the biggest barrier to getting out of covid getting a vaccine get your vaccine get a yep. vaccine just please you know we're all in this we're all in this mess together um literally and even if you're healthy not healthy as it turns out 75% of us plus probably more than that, because COVID is so infective, have to get the vaccine or the illness to get out of this mess. Well, the vaccine isn't going to make you that sick, but I can guarantee you COVID is going to make you sick. So for reference, this is a total sidebar from your question, but for reference, typically I, um, in a normal month, will intubate one or two patients a month. So what's intubation? Intubation is where I put some money on the ventilator machine, which is life support. And so now we're in prime COVID season. In my last block of six shifts, I think I intubated five patients in six days. So like way more than I usually do, you know? Um, well, we, and I mean like just in
1: the last, like I've, for the listeners, I actually uh have had the opportunity to rotate under uh, Dr. Hunt as a medical student. We've seen again like, in my just for the last three months of doing ER, like, it almost seems like some days like almost half the patients are either COVID positive or were treated specifically for COVID. So it's it's yeah. been so yeah.
2: it's, it's been a lot. It's it's not a lie. It's here. There's no we we can't have the sense of denial about it. And so we all got to do our part. And the biggest thing that you can do your part, whether or not, you, whether you want to have a philosophical argument about lockdowns or masking or this or the, that, vaccination, if we can just all get vaccinated as soon as it's available, we will be out of this mess so much faster. <laughs> so that's step number one. Absolutely. Right. So the other big thing, obesity. We talked about it. Um, The best thing that you can do for yourself to prevent your mortality or your risk of death and your risk of some severe outcome because of COVID itself, let alone everything else, is to lose weight, honestly. Because COVID overwhelmingly kills and maims people that are older or obese. And that's just a fact. And so... um, the biggest thing that you can do for yourself if you're on the heavier end is to lose some weight. And this is coming from a former obese child. <laughs> I had powerlifting help three, me. Three former obese children. So oh, okay. there you go. Nice. <laughs> all right, what's the number? You guys got to tell me because mine was 100 pounds. I lost 100 pounds while I was a teenager.
1: I lost about 60, 65 70 to 80 for me we got the the winner of the obese child
2: weight loss challenge (laughs) (laughs) nice yeah so you can do it baby steps set an easy goal half a pound a week it's and if you have a lot of weight to lose it's totally doable look up ethan supley um he's the dude from remember the titans that was the obese guy and he got on the Renaissance. He looks period.
0: phenomenal now. He looks awesome. Yeah.
2: He so looks he great. The periodization diet, which they sponsor USA Powerlifting. He's lost tons of weight. As it turns out, the two guys again a sidebar um, that uh, run Renaissance periodization. So Mike isriatel and Nick Shaw. Those were two of my workout buddies in New York um, oh, when wow. I was. Let's see, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <So. laughs> Man, that's a good. That's a pretty solid workout.
0: workout. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was,
2: well,
1: we, was had, uh, we had Dr. Nadal, Spencer Nadalski who just recently I don't know how recently but relatively recently started joining their team as a part of the the diet group and uh medical
2: side of the RP but he we, he's uh been on our podcast and he'll be in one of our episodes as well yeah, so got, solid advice and and he's an endocrinologist so he's he's definitely big on the preventative stuff because he has a lot to say about that um so getting out of COVID, get your vaccine, obesity rates. And then the biggest thing that I've encountered every day is, like I said, substance abuse. So opi- opiate abuse and alcoholism. Those are the things that are kind of the biggest plagues that I think that we have right now in our society. Um, let And that's not even mentioning mental health issues, right? Because that is a major consideration right now. And since we haven't touched on it, I can go into it really briefly. Um, but I you know I see a, a large part of my practice of medicine is is psychiatric, seriously. Um, so I see patients that are acutely suicidal, acutely psychotic, and it's, I see it most days um, and I think we talked about this when you were rotating with me that yeah. you know everybody in their lifetime, will experience some kind of psychiatric illness. Yep. You know, the rates are quoted low of like, you know, 10 to 15% will get depressed in their lifetime or what, you know, 20% of people will experience an anxiety issue. Yep. I would argue that 100% of every human being will have some kind of psychiatric issue in their lifetime. Yep. I mean, it's full stop. if you have a brain, you'll have <laughs> some kind of psych issue and that's okay.
0: That's yep. serious fine. Like, it's just... Looks like Jason's clear then. (laughs) Hey, hey, all right. I I
1: prevented one thing by not having a brain.
2: (laughs) Right. So, um, so big part of like preventative maintenance that you can do for yourself is, you know, hiring a therapist, you know, or practicing mindfulness, downloading the Headspace app, you know, because a lot of the stuff that, that goes into anything with medicine is all psychology.
0: I mean, really. And, and just real quick, I'm going to plug our episode with uh, Dr. Mitesh Patel. We had an episode with a psychiatrist who talked about this, actually a lot of mindfulness and preventive medicine as it relates to mental health. So go check that episode out if you're listening right now.
2: Yeah. So, um, because I can tell you that a lot of the chronic conditions that become an emergent thing that I see could have been prevented with the right mindset. Right or the right mindfulness. Um, You know, there's a lot of um, stuff that a a couple of high level coaches in powerlifting that actually have been writing about um, recently on their Instagram. So Bryce Lewis, who's a buddy of mine and um, Mike Desheer, who's my coach. They've been, they've been talking about um, psychology a lot recently in their Instagram. And that's honestly all being a high level athlete is, is, having a good mindset have being in the right headspace you know having the wherewithal to do the grind every day well what's life i mean most of life and being healthy is just having the right mindset towards diet towards exercise towards you know doing the things that you need to do for your own preventative health so you don't get sick it's just being in the correct headspace um But that also goes to a longer, larger conversation about why people that are successful in the world are successful. And it has to do with actually having a higher emotional intelligence than a higher um, actual IQ, right? Um, Because you don't have to be actually super smart in the world to do well in the world, but you have to be emotionally intelligent to do well in the world. And that's been... Backed up with a lot of data, um, so if you want to better yourself, best thing you can do hire a therapist. You know, be practice mindfulness.
0: Yeah, Thanks. excellent takeaways there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, like all those things kind of get you know, like you said, like unique perspective where you see it almost not necessarily too late because you can still do things about it, but you're seeing it way beyond the point of you know original or primary prevention, and that's that's a unique perspective because you see all the things that maybe. You get to almost you know, trace it back from where they're at when you see them. Like, okay, well, if all these other steps would have been better, these things could have been done, you know, years ago, then you wouldn't oh. be here right now. So it's a big, it's a very interesting, unique perspective. With that being said, so the last thing, the last question we have for you is something we ask everybody as well. And so, you know, it's the so coffee you, shop. The co- <laughs> so we call it the coffee shop question. So you're, you know, you're at Starbucks, wherever you like to get your coffee. Someone recognizes you, and they're like, "Oh, hey, it's Dr. Hunt." Uh, and then, the, you know, they ask me, Hey, what do I need to do to get healthy? What's your two minute elevator pitch or coffee shop conversation for, here's the things,
2: here's what you need to do to get healthy. Okay. Um, eat a vegetable every time you sit down for a meal, eat a lean meat every time you sit down for a meal. Um, and then start doing body weight exercises. And after you start doing body weight exercises, start loading it a little bit. um, make sure to drink a protein shake before bed every night and get eight hours of sleep. And that's it. I mean, there's a lot of no brainer stuff. Um, and then you can start picking up books, um, if you want to get stronger, but think about getting stronger. If you don't want to get stronger, walk a lot, take a dog out for a walk four times a day. That's fine if, if lifting doesn't appeal to you. Um, but start with vegetables, start with a lean protein, start with eight hours of sleep every night you go a long way to a lot of stuff. Absolutely,
1: that was that was probably the most concise, like, clear answer we've gotten. So that's like we've had internal medicine people on here who like like <laughs> long, much longer answer. So like that, if it, that I can the treat that here somehow, are, like <laughs> that encapsulate like, the emergency medicine
2: versus like psychiatry. So, yeah, emergency medicine is like right? So I got to keep it like no nonsense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Yeah. All I got out of that was get a dog. Your life will be better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you're, I'm not wrong though. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely not. All right. Well, thank All you so right.
1: much, Dr. Hump for joining us today. We appreciate, that. I think our listeners will get a lot out of this episode. We touched on a lot of things. So thank you for uh, joining us today.
0: And is there anything you want to plug, uh, last minute before we boot you off of here? <laughs> I just want to plug USA
2: Powerlifting and, um, St. Vincent Emergency Physicians, who's my employer, um, cause we've been doing a lot of good for a lot of years. We've been fighting this pandemic. Every single one of my partners got vaccinated, um, from my understanding. Um, and we'll all get through this together if we all just get our shots.
0: Hey everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.